Today's podcast is brought to you by Isoway Sports, the sports range for athletes looking for supplements that are free from all artificial colours, flavours, sweeteners and added fructose. Intense physical training programs place significantly higher nutritional demands on sports people, and Isoway Sports are committed to providing pure nutritional ingredients that are truly complementary to a healthy, active lifestyle. You can visit isoasports.com.au for more information. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me in the studio today is none other than Dr. Mark Donahoe, an integrative doctor of much renown. And I welcome you back to the studio, mate. How are you? Oh, I'm good, except for laryngeal spasms. So the, the occasional, the, the husky voice is something I bring brand new to radio today. <laughs> Your immune system is in training, I understand. No, my immune system's good. I haven't been that sick with it. It's just that strange things happen when the larynx stops working and voice doesn't come out. It, it's, uh, it's odd. So this could be entertaining. And of course, we're going to be talking about germs today. Yeah. Good and, and bad ones. Good and bad ones and the, the differentiation between them. But I think we need to start right back. Let's talk about this disparity of what is a germ. That, you know, they are them. We mm. are us and the, the never the twain shall meet. But that's not correct, is it? No. I think the, the big learning since the time of Pasteur is that there are germs that do do harm, and they are the tiniest, tiniest minority of all the germs around the place. And medicine has focused 100% of its attention on the defeat. These are the kind of evildoers of the world, and we are defending ourselves against them. Mm. And that comes, obviously, you know, the victory of the antibiotics mm. over some of these germs was a very powerful victory, and it stands in the minds of the medical profession and the community as that magic of us defeating germs. And it's been nearly, you know, 80 years, 90 years of a battle against a foe that really doesn't exist. It exists in our minds. We focused all effort on that and no effort on harnessing the value of the bugs that do us good, the bugs that we share a destiny with. And in that battle, in the overuse of antibiotics, we now stand 80 years later on that precipice, which is we've been so good at defeating germs that we've defeated the ones that keep us going and that keep us healthy and alive. And unfortunately, those uh, extremely virulent pathogens, which we did need to control, they were, they were decimating humanity, um, have given those people of that mindset continuing validity of the us versus them mentality. Haven't yes, it, it does. I'm I'm not for a second promoting the idea that we go back to caves and, you know, that nature red in tooth and claw is a great thing to no. do. But understanding that pendulums swing in one direction, we go too far and then we learn our lesson and we have to swing back the other way, mm. that's a long and painful lesson with the antibiotics. We have a new tool called antibiotics in the early part of the 20th century we overuse it like stink. Many doctors, people I know, very intelligent doctors, regarded antibiotics in the 1980s as a placebo that you could give for anything mm. because people believed in antibiotics. No harm was done by using them and used them for coughs, colds, flus, rashes, sore eyes, tiredness. And that, uh, that abuse of our colleagues in life, our kind of little helpers, 
the microbiome of the gut and the skin and the nose leads to consequences. And the consequences, oddly, for doctors were you overuse the antibiotics, you create the next problem in healthcare for that person. You do caesareans, you create the problems for the child developing without an adequate microbiome that our win was never a win. It was always half win and half loss. And indeed, now the National Prescribing Service has put out a TV ad talking about how to avoid antibiotics for the cold and flu. Um, but this is nothing new. This was a the resistance fighter marketing campaign, which wasn't done very well, I've got to say. Mm. Good premise. Was, what, five, six years ago yeah. with the purple T-shirts. Um, now, however, it's really coming to the crunch because we're seeing not just resistant bugs in hospital situations, but we're now seeing these resistant conditions out in the community. Yeah. Yeah, we are. And and what what in my day was a, a to-be-feared organism, a vancomycin-resistant or a general antibiotic-resistant organism developing in hospital, now routinely we see that and we're having to deal with that. And the tools that we have to deal with it are getting less and less. The antibiotic-resistant issue is one half of the story. We have bred enemies that are now so resistant <clears throat> to our efforts to control them that they are a particular threat. What we failed to do was recognise that our friends were one of our primary defences against those enemies. The bugs sorted it out between themselves. When microbes come along, a healthy microbial covering of the mucous membrane is our very, very first line zero of defence. We don't look to innate immune system as number one barrier, we're looking to the mucus and its microbes as the number one barrier. And I think all of the really good stuff that's happening with antibiotic resistance now is looking to what can be done to top up the microbes Mm. that would defend us and make our immune system stronger against those potential foes. And it's very exciting. And it is, for the first time, probably potentially not something for which resistance can develop. If we develop health as a barrier to disease, what an amazing concept that would be. It only took Mm. medicine 2,000 (laughs) years to remember that that's what it used to do. So health itself is not just the health of the human, it's the health of all of the human, including the microbes, including the bugs that we carry and that carry us along in good health. And the invaders, we've done most of the work to get rid of them. We are always amazed when a single person dies of an infectious disease now except at the very tail end of life. Mm. So we've won one battle, we've got it out of balance, and now we're spending a decade going through the microbiome and asking the question, how do we defend ourselves against the indefensible? We've lost our guns. We better make friends. You know, it's time to sit at peace talks with some of the bugs around the place. And that approach is going to prove far, far more effective than developing a new gun. And indeed, we're going to be talking about some of these friends that we carry around in our naughty bits today. (laughs) But before we get to that, you said that we carry them around, and indeed we carry them around in almost every cell of the human body, don't we? We do. And when people talk about we are outnumbered by our microbes, and the typical number is 100 to 1, there's some question about, you know, is somewhere between 40 to 1 and 400 to 1. We're only counting the bugs that we think of as bugs outside the cells, the ones that live in the gut, on the skin, in the nose, and very, very important. These are the kind of first non-human external organ. But inside every cell, we have the, not just the remnants of the microbes, but active microbial DNA going on, providing us energy. And 
typically the average cell has 300 of the mitochondria. We're outnumbered 300 to 1 internally with microbes that invaded cells or were engulfed by cells and developed a symbiotic relationship. And now what we're seeing really excitingly <coughs> is that the DNA of the gut microbes and the DNA of the mitochondria share parts where there is a communication channel going between what happens in the gut and our energy supplies. So it may turn out not to be any um, mystery that we feel so rotten and energy-free at times. I see chronic fatigue syndrome patients, but anybody has this experience. You have the flu, you are wiped out with energy. We've always used this line, oh, it's this, you know, it's basically the immune regulators, the interleukins and cytokines that do it. But the messages going between the gut, the skin, and those uh, little energy packets in each of our cells is direct communication, molecular communication, which can be manipulated. And so you can almost imagine microbes saying, hey, look, we need energy down here. Could you switch off the battery a little bit in that human that we've got going there giving us all our food? Switch it off for a while. Let them rest, sleep, go 12 hours a day. We've got a bit of a job to do down here with a potential invader. What do we all try and do? We take cold and flu tablets to try and get back to work. The worst possible thing you could do, not just for your own health, but if you're going to spread it to more people, (laughs) being at work and going through the city one day is just the worst possible outcome. So getting sick, feeling sick, being sick and getting well has been a habit of humans for centuries, millennia, maybe over a million years. Going to work as the number one priority to be productive for your country that's not the way things it, even work. It's great for the propagation of the organism because it wants to survive. Sure. And that's what it does. Nothing it better things. than a city and <laughs> close-packed humans and people feeling an obligation to go and cough on somebody else. I mean, you just can't work better than that. But it, it does it does behoove us, therefore, if we're running out of antibiotics, to do what the National Prescribing Service says. Stop using antibiotics for what are viral in nature, what you cannot fix with antibiotics. And because it hasn't worked well with doctors, the doctor's answer is always, but people expect it, people demand it. So NPS is working the other way to say, can we get people to demand no antibiotics? Can we actually have a positive reinforcement that no antibiotics equals good medicine and antibiotic use had better be explainable because otherwise it's just bad medicine. We can only hope that that new NPS marketing campaign is going to be successful in changing the view of the layperson about how the appropriate use of antibiotics, can't we? Yeah, we can. And we can also hope that doctors pay attention to it. The hidden message in NPS is it's really trying to communicate with doctors. And changing the expectation of the patients allows the doctor who's on that borderline to just say, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this. Have you heard of the push for minimising the unnecessary use of antibiotics? And I think that's a good conversation starter in medical practice. Absolutely. So now on to naughty bits. Yes, naughty bits. They're my favourite bits. And this is why we, 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 we get down to an understanding of exactly why the naughty bits are placed so close to the bottom. <laughs> Indeed, some very interesting work was done in 2014-odd by investigators at the University of Madrid, um, and that was Juan Miguel Rodriguez's group. Trust the Spanish. At Madrid's, Madrid University. And what they found was that there's a whole maternal microbiome that can be transferred directly to the baby, not from the birth canal, but indeed via the breast milk. Yeah, we're finding our idea of microbes when they move through bodies, we think of them in medical terms as bacteremia or septicemia. Mm. And this is, we regard it as terribly bad news when a microbe gets somewhere that it shouldn't be. 
But that comes back to our fear of microbes, the idea that a microbe must be defended against and that every bacterium, we don't want to defend ourselves against mitochondria. It would make perfect sense that we develop tolerance to certain bacteria and we provide a shepherding or a method for transfer, a method for these to become dominant species in the offspring. And so it shouldn't surprise us, but it does surprise us that the maternal microbiome has an entry point to the baby that happens while they're in utero. Our idea that the baby was sterile in utero is part of the reason that we went on to caesarean saying, if they're sterile there, we know that there's this stuff called meconium, which must be terrible stuff. Why did we think meconium was terrible if we're sure there's no microbes there? It's just waste material. Hmm. So our fear of these microbes led us to misinterpret meconium as terrible news that we had to avoid at all costs, rather than recognize that this is one of the very many mechanisms by which a newborn baby becomes set for health in the world. They swallow this. Their gut immunology is going to start developing breast milk and the you know these complex glycans that we've talked about before are going to nurture a very diverse environment. But you can't start with a stunted growth and develop a diverse environment. So this idea that the colonization of babies happens prior to birth via the placenta is tough for medicine to grasp, but it is tough because our prior conception was microbes equal evil, and we think of that as a bad thing happening. I think it's thrilling, the idea that the microbes do wander around in the bloodstream of really healthy adults, and they can live happily, they don't colonize, they don't set up pathogenicity, they don't develop um, strong immune responses. Why? Because as far as our bodies are concerned, they're part of us. We should share them with the baby? Yeah, because what we've developed tolerance to that baby's going to need tolerance to, and it may as well start at the earliest possible stages of life. And I might point out to our listeners that we're not talking about colonies of bacteria floating around your blood. That's an infection. That's sepsis. What we're talking about is one or two or a few bacteria, commensal bacteria, taken up by the monocytes and transferred directly through the blood and the lymph to the breast. And so it's an accessory pathway from which the baby can be colonised. It's it's not the main pathway. You're right. It's organised. It's not accidental. This is a method by which biology transfers the next generation. What would be terrible is if the microbes had to start from scratch every time. If you think of this from the microbes view, every microbe in your gut has an unbroken lineage for maybe 3.5 billion years. It's never been dead. It Mm. never dies. It never passes on. It magically keeps on going. Many many microbes die, but the ones that are survivors don't have sexual reproduction. There's no birth and death for them. They're just dividing the whole time. The successful ones will be the ones that find out how to get into the new host and how to have that same mutually beneficial relationship with the baby once born. It extends their life for another human generation, which may only be, you know, 75, 80, 100 years at the best. But 100 years for a microbial line is a, you know, it's a nice little building block. It's a block of flats that you've uh, inherited and managed to uh, keep healthy for a long period of time. So I, I'm, I think that the renewed view of the microbes are in nature, the bugs, the bacteria, the viruses, the par- what we regard as parasites, rule the world. They are the dominant life form by far, and nature has always been good at shuffling these things around to the benefit of the plant, the animal, or anything else. We are the first species to be fearful of something because we learned about it and regarded it as an enemy, 
And what we learn in culture, in life, in politics is once you regard something as an enemy, it becomes an enemy. You create the very thing that you're opposing and resisting, and then you run out of bullets, and suddenly you find yourself at the mercy of those enemies. So developing the relationship with the bugs happens as early as we could possibly believe it to happen. And going from generation to generation has been something mothers have done successfully unbroken since the time of sexual reproduction. Sexual reproduction and the naughty bits carry more than just the genetic information. They carry the future of the microbes in the offspring. And that that is a real learning experience for us doctors. Something that's very interesting, and I've only just thought about it, is when you consider that most animals, certainly carnivores, um, but not just, even ruminants, will eat part of the placenta. Yes. And it, granted that it may be just for survival, protein, you know, an energy source, but maybe there's also some form of the bacteria taking advantage of that to recycle themselves throughout the Yeah, the I'd be careful about overdoing it. I think... I think most animals can't afford to lose that much nutrients. I mean, I'm mm. thinking bluntly, yeah. the reason they eat it is that. The commensal transfer is an extra beneficial relationship. Yeah. But um, when you say even ruminants, a lot of the herbivores, are, you know, they're mouth to stomach to energy, and that's how they survive. Losing a lot of potential energy, iron, heme, all of the rest of it is just not something that they can afford. Mm. And the baby's just about to suckle. So hell's bells, that placenta becomes the first dozen meals are looked after (laughs) and you don't have to be quite so paranoid about getting out and getting grass so much before the uh, baby starts suckling. But you know, this this maternal microbiome, it even goes one more step and that's that they've they've found uh, an in utero microbiome Mm. and or or microbial uh, fragments, DNA fragments at least. And I I struggled with this, I really did, because I thought, what is keeping a live bacteria in check, in utero. Mm. I don't understand that concept. I'm still still grappling with it. I have a bigger question. We have a microbiome in our gut, of which thousands of them are killers if we are unhealthy enough. And by that, I mean, once you tip over the edge of where your health can maintain the relationship with them, the job of those microbes is to recycle us. We have a recycling system built inside us. What stops them from recycling us all the rest of the time? Well, we have a good relationship. We feed them. They look after us. They stop pathogens getting in. They do a lot of our nutrient production. They give us things that make our brain happy, give us a little bit of serotonin and dopamine. They switch on and on little plugs. So they have an interest in us. We have an interest in them. It should be Mm. that they are part of our generational future and that what's going on in the uterus is getting used to things that are going to become part of the background of that baby's life. We do know transplacental transfer of immunity occurs, so the mother's immunological responses to those microbes also heads across the placenta. There is therefore a a transplacental immunity that can look after any potential problems should a pathogen get in there that the mum has not been exposed to that's bad news for the baby and that normally ends very badly but generally speaking if they're the normal microbes mother's immunity baby's immunity the idea is to synchronize them at birth so the baby enters the world with the same capacity that the mother had and that's partly the microbes that they're loaded with partly the mother's immune response delivered via the placenta It's complex, but it's just a beautiful design. And that means that babies born into terribly polluted and toxic environments have a chance of surviving. Whereas if they went in naked with their microbes, 
they would have very, very little chance of survival. But, you know, this goes even more complex because seminal fluid carries a microbiota of itself, doesn't it? Yeah, dads, dads seem to contribute un, unexpected things, shall we say. The, there are even a couple of mitochondria that might get across. It was always thought that all mitochondria were maternal. The mitochondria do ri- drive the little sperm, and there is evidence that there are some male mitochondria, which is bacterial contents itself. So the idea of carrying microbes into that relationship it could be as simple as just setting up the environment so that fertilisation is optimised. It could also be as complex as dad has a different environment that the male may be exposed to, getting out there being hunted and or hunting and scratching and cutting themselves. There may be more of an exposure to pathogens. Typically men have died a decade earlier than women for really good reasons. They got you know a, a horn put into them or gourd or something like that. So having variety... For the baby, from the baby's perspective, is probably not a bad idea. I, I honestly would think, I may be proven wrong on this, that the male contribution through the seminal microbes is probably not going to be as important as the mother's, but variety has, a bit, has an ability that biodiversity has a good and positive influence on the immunology of the developing baby. Well, it seems uh, that two papers that I've just glanced at, uh, one showed no real difference, but anaerococcus may actually be a marker, a biomarker for sperm quality. But what the uh, second paper found, and this is a very interesting one, looking at the relationship with viral load in HIV infection, is that um, there appeared to be six broad classifications uh, or clusters, if you like, of taxa in healthy seminal fluid versus unhealthy. That's amazing, isn't it? The six clusters, you'd imagine that the number of microbes would be so low that you would hardly be able to cluster them at all. But yeah, it, it does make some sense that the sperm have a job to do and having a healthy microbiome of the vagina after ejaculation is probably a very good way of keeping sperm health high so that there's a higher likelihood of fertilization. So there's a, you know, rather than transferring it onto the infant, when I was saying I think that the variety is not going to be high, there's certainly the job of getting to fertilization. And so setting up the environment in the vagina, getting across that very nasty cervix which really tests out the, the sperm, there probably has to be manipulation of all those processes and a male with a healthy, diverse microbiome is like a symmetrical male, a more desirable one to fertilise. If they've got good bugs and they've got good, strong sperm and the sperms swim well, then that's the selection process which is going to see that ovum fertilised by the healthiest of the males. So I can see how this could work out very, very well for males. You know, Rather than the old vitamin E or the zinc, let's get the probiotics in there to really give the males a head start when it comes to making babies. And indeed... How do you grow these good bugs? <laughs> You've got to look at the diet. If yeah. you want to have a high sugar diet, then you're going to grow a poor uh, diversity. That's right. And that, that I think is something that we've now got at least a conceptual framework for. It's not the name of the bug necessarily. It's that there's high biodiversity and diverse bugs sort out their own hierarchy their own environment they create something which we are blissfully unaware of but those bugs in a diverse arrangement can die off and survive and thrive according to what the circumstances are around them as a kind of epigenetics of bugs in a way the survivors will be those best adapted the best adapted become the friends of the new and developing macropod 
And that macropod does very, very well by having that diversity on board right at the beginning. Indeed. It seems like as long as you've got a diverse array of commensals or probiotics, whatever you want to call them, um, they keep the bad guys in check, Hmm. but allow some of these quasi-pathogens to stimulate your immune system. Indeed, the the segmented felimentous bacteria um, indeed seem to do that by upregulating TH17 and and they upregulate your immune system as long as you've got a nice diverse array of microbiota. That's right. Uh, The distance between friends and enemies is very low. Give the environment, make the environment right for the over supply of any one group or any one tax or any one group, the Firmicutes versus the uh, Bacteroidetes or no matter what you do, if you pre-select for one colony, you lose diversity. You feed them up, the numbers go up, but the numbers are there of the ones that will stimulate the very wrong immune response. And so rather than just giving an antibiotic, what we need to do is to increase the biodiversity. Let's bring this back now to what do we do about it? How do we create a good garden of a diverse array of healthy microbiota? Surely we've got to start right back at the diet. Yes, no no doubt about it. Unfortunately, where you need to start is right back at the childhood diet of the mother. And, you know, you probably also have to reduce toxin load. There are toxins, especially with the males work with, but there are toxins in our community, some of them, as uh, Joe Pizzorno told us, some of them endotoxins, some of them exotoxins. We have things which alter sperm quality, which alter fertility, which, which see epigenetic changes that are related to microbes later on in life that could have been averted had the person looked at health, say, a year before conception. And so to me, that does take you back generation by generation. The babies of one generation will respond to the grandmother's environment at the conception of their own mother. And so we're looking at microbiota and mitochondria and toxicology and genetic expression going back across generations. And that's why it takes so long for stuff-ups like antibiotics to make their way through. Human generations, if you don't see your baby sick straight away, but that baby becomes something that has sick children themselves, you can lose track of the fact that diet diversity disappeared 50 years ago. It's not 50-year-olds that are having all the babies. It's the children of the the women who had the low biodiversity. So we have, I think, to start with that process of get born through the vagina with breast milk over a period of at least a few months, and you've got the best chance of creating the diversity, which will transgenerationally go go on so that your children's health is perpetuated by your health in childhood. Mm. At the very least, what people can do is come to pregnancy with a planned approach. Now, I know this is not popular. Naughty bits have a mind of their own. I'm not sure if you've understood this in the past, but they just seem to get pregnant at the worst possible times and they get together in unusual ways. But planning pregnancy is something that's now within our grasp. And getting healthy males to get healthy sperm, to get healthy microbes themselves, is probably a harder job than females becoming healthy in preparation for pregnancy. Males see their job as ejaculate, my job's done and I'm out of here, whereas females see preparation for pregnancy in a very different way. The odd truth is what the males do in the 12 months before has a big impact on sperm quality. What the females do, because the eggs are in this kind of metaphase, very low metabolic rate, 
prior to pregnancy, the eggs are relatively well preserved. They were made at the conception, not long after conception of the mother. Their job is to be stable over 40 to 50 years. Mm, mm. And so what the mum does before has less of an impact on the eggs. But what we do know is the accumulation of those small insults sees egg quality go down. So by your 40s, the likelihood of a successful pregnancy with a healthy egg and healthy sperm is reduced. So my advice is the males need to get on board with pregnancy planning in the 6 to 12 months before. They need to be very focused on their jobs, their alcohol, their toxins, their dope, everything like this. Cigarette smoking is critical. And sperm quality and microbiome, as you're seeing from these papers, are linked together. So getting a healthy gut and paying attention to diet and making sure that the sugars do not dominate that landscape means that you build better sperm. We all have these ideas, you know, those marketers that say, oh, here's a one-a-day multivitamin, it will make your sperm good. It's harder work than that. And we are no longer in the competitive environment usually where lots of males, where females are selecting the male by having sex with lots of them and then the most healthy sperm survive. This doesn't happen as regularly now as apparently it did in the past. But we still have the obligation of the male to be as healthy as they can be come the time of conception. My view then is, Mum's job starts when she feels, okay, we're close to conception. The maintenance of the microbiome, the maintenance of nutrition, the building of babies with the omega-3s and making sure that especially the DHA availability in the diet is high uh, and towards the end of pregnancy, making really sure that the diet and the gut microbes are in shape and ready to go. These are things that are just lost in the messages we give mothers about pregnancy. We imply, once you get pregnant, meh, as long as you don't have alcohol and don't smoke, everything will be okay. And it's, again, building babies is a process that we're only learning about right now. I think um, this is part of the new message is also that um, part of a fertility plan should also include a healthy diet that engenders a diverse array of probiotic commensals and or indeed taking a probiotic as well, um, preferably broad spectrum, but there's some evidence to show that, say, for instance, lactobacillus rhamnosus GG, as long as it's taken from the last trimester of pregnancy yeah. and continued um, on and given to the baby once it's born, then that can decrease, for instance, atopic dermatitis. Yes. But if you don't do that, then it's not going to work. So I think the message is to start these commensal bacteria early on in the pregnancy. But this comes back to the very thing you were saying, where are these microbes? So the idea, people ask me this, and I said, look, the evidence is that you need to do it in the last trimester. And their, own, and their question was, is why, does it take three months to build up so that when they're born, everything's okay? And it's a hard thing to answer. I didn't know why, but the research follows reality in a sense. The mothers that look after that microbiome in that final third of pregnancy are building healthy bacteria with their babies in a symbiotic process that is invisible to us as doctors. Mm. If you take it too late, the baby's likelihood of getting eczema, the, the likelihood of atopic um, problems and infantile eczema in those first two years of life goes up quite significantly. So building babies for mums means considering them as though they're outside and alive for that last trimester because things are changing around. Microbes are being developed and the whole relationship with the baby and the outside world is starting before they exit the birth canal. What's what's interesting to me is the different strain uh, research, if you like. Yeah. And in research, people will want to pick a strain because you want to you want control. I get yes. that. But um, what's interesting to me is that the difference in the different strains 
results, for instance, um, lactobacillus GG, if you give it once the baby's born, then it may not do anything for the atopic eczema and may indeed increase wheeze. However, HN001 strain does appear to have effect up until I think it's four and five years of life. Really interesting stuff about the This may be the new medicine that we're talking about, that there is like a generally good diet, a generally good microbiome, uh, the kind of general advice of how to do this stuff probably applies broadly. But I think we are reaching the point where we can see there are differences in the strains. Mm. What we're doing is untangling nature's diversity issue. When flowers bloom in spring, it does not surprise us, but there is a diversity of the blooming. And can you go in and plant something? You can. You can go and plant something that has pharmacological effects. And the new pharmacology that's exciting for me is rather than doctors having anti-everything, antibiotics, Mm. anti-cholesterol, anti-everything, could we not have a positive approach to the natural responses and build what is useful rather than fight everything that we see as enemies? That strain um, research, I think, is powerful because instead of using drugs to have eczema control, instead of layering cortisone over babies, we may have little organism strains which, if administered appropriately, are able to do the job that drugs do. But it's got the it's got the powerful message as long as you can fit the parameters of the research. Mm. And I think the other side of that message is if you can't, <laughs> then you should be really looking at a broad spectrum, yeah. perhaps species delineated rather yeah. than strain delineated, thinking that, that one strain is going to be the magic thing for everything. The magic, bullet, the magic bullet is the medical mythology, no. right? We have the magic bullet concept, but there are times that the magic bullet appropriately, pro, appropriately provided right. does the magic, that's and right. that sits in the mind of every doctor. We've been to hospitals where the magic pill did its job. The GP coped with the adverse effects three weeks later, but we don't see it. <laughs> Now, this is the, uh, to me, the microbiome project's exciting bit is this is the new medicine that our understanding of our relationship with our microbes is not a trivial thing. It is not, oh, by the way, there's microbes down there, be nice to them. It is, hey, all of our immunology, all of that mucosal immunology that Mike Ash talked about at the symposium, all of that is predicated upon obscure and indefinable balances that are going on there. What can we do to help it? The diet, primarily. The stewed apple, (laughs) primarily, (laughs) which I've got to say has been magic in my practice. Since Mike said that, it seems ridiculous, but the stewed apple provided to people who swear they can't have apples and the beneficial outcomes of that with the gastrointestinal tract just amaze me. But those interventions that we can have which are general have to also be matched by research which says sometimes there is a real problem to be identified and treated. And if you've got the choice between a steroid or an antihistamine and a microbe that can deliver molecules that the baby would normally have modified their immune system, then the appropriate use of those strains is going to be one of the futures that emerges from the microbiome project. I'm excited about it. But it does not counter the need for the diet and the lifestyle and those things to be together in the first place. Put it this way. If you don't change the diet, you are forever reliant on that strain because you yeah. won't be feeding it. Yeah. <laughs> None of these things it's bloom like, and stay. That's they right. All it's like growing a monoculture in a desert. <laughs> right? Right. You do not want to be trying to <laughs> A rose in a desert. That's, that's right. <laughs> you need fertilizer. <laughs> you need good compost. Which gets us back to the naughty bits and why they're placed where <laughs> they are. The microbes of the vagina 
and the microbes of the sperm are not unrelated to our gastrointestinal microbes. The teeming microbes there, the messiness of sex is not is not accidental, shall I say. The microbes are part of the environment that the baby's going to have to cope with. We culture our environments. And when you talked about gardening, it's exactly what we need to learn. Farmers know this in fields. They forget it once the pesticides and these things come along and everything's mechanical. But going back to that diversity is the new learning of the microbiome. And I'm a big fan of high-dose multi-strain bacteria when things get out of whack. But I'm a bigger fan of diet and dietary diversity when things just need to be maintained and you need to go season to season. And I've got now more and more of my patients on that, you know, you remember the Nature article, cut back the carbohydrates very, very dramatically for a period of six or eight weeks, you get your diversity back. The numbers of microbes in the gut go down, but the diversity increases. Then you go back to your normal fruits and vegetables and foods in season, and that diversity is maintained for six or maybe even 12 months afterwards. We're going on to some concepts here that Jeff Leach explored when he was staying with the Hadza tribe in Africa. Yes, And yes. some really interesting things, notwithstanding the very interesting thing that he did with a turkey baster in trying to improve the diversity of his gut microbiota by inserting some from a Hadza tribesman. Um, yes. There are so many questions from the <laughs> ethics committee on that particular <laughs> trial that I would love to be able to ask. But again, naughty bits down in dirty areas and bottoms. There Don't think that one would pass. There is a whole area of health there. And turkey basters have got a terrible name over the last <laughs> number of years. I, I'm sure that this is perpetuated by turkeys. Um, but the interesting thing that I got from Jeff Leach's experience was, one, the Hadza tribesmen had a massive intake of honey, a huge intake of fructose, if you like, um, but they had very little uh, diabetes in the community. However, you've then got to t- take in the lifestyle factors. And one of these things is they're always exercising, they're always on the hunt. The other thing is they're always slightly hungry. And this brings in that concept of the partial fasting, the the caloric restriction, not starving, but this slight hunger. Yeah, and the and the various ways that we're trying to apply it. <clears throat> I here's a problem I have: protocols and Women's Day front pages piss me off, mainly because the concept behind it is: hey, there's one right thing for everybody, and if you get this magazine or you That's go right. on this diet, this is good for everybody, and there is no such diet. No. There's the diet for the individual, but the concept of evolutionary biology, how do you eat? Do you actually eat during nighttime hours, even you know the kind of 12-hour gap between meals? Mm. Those things have some relevance to me because there is a background of life where being a little bit short of food and not eating at times, not cooking things where you attract lions, tigers, or anything else mm. that can smell what you are cooking, mm. probably made a lot of sense. And so the idea that you could go the 12 hours and have a kind of glycemic drop and be adapted to the shortage of foods over over the daily timescale or seasonal timescales, definitely true for people who are Caucasian in, in their origin where seasonality is a big thing, where um, vegetables and fruits are not available all year round mm. and you have to catch little small animals. Um, those kind of paying attention to the type of environments we grew up in, we can misinterpret terribly, but at least we can get some clue about it. People do like their 5-2 diet. 
I think that there's better things they could do. People, you know, like almost everything in life if they do it and you feel crazy if you didn't get a benefit from it. But it does do something for diversity mm. and resilience. The idea of the overnight fasting of the 12 hours between meals, I'm keen to try. It's not very popular because people like to sit down for dinner at 8, 9 or 10 o'clock at night and generally are getting up within that 12-hour period and want to get something in their stomach early on. So it does play back on what was I taught? Small meals often, eat continuously, don't get into these glycemic isles and falls, chew slowly, all of that. So it's really interesting how a lot of this comes back to these old grandma sensible things. Yeah. We need to eat more slowly. We need to chew our food till it's pace. We need to have seasonal food. We need to go for a walk after dinner. Yeah, yeah, as far as glycemic control, that's a very important thing as Such well. simple things. Why have we lost them? Yeah. <clears throat> well, we developed electricity and we're able to stay <laughs> up until 10 o'clock at night and be eating dinner late into the evening. <clears throat> Cooking shows. That's what it's <laughs> That's, that's basically what it is. I blame my kitchen rules. That looks nice. I'll cook it now. <laughs> yes, yes. And fast food. I mean, don't, don't ignore the fact that food availability now means there are very rarely people who go hungry. Even people who can't afford food can afford McDonald's. And it is small change to be able to get lots of carbohydrates and fats in that have no great nutritional value whatsoever. And may, and this may distort a lot of what we regard as health, both obesity-wise, well, probably not so much with fats as we're now discovering, um, but also as far as general health, inflammation, those firmicutes and the breeding up of the very highly uh, sugar-sensitive bacteria has a consequence as far as inflammation goes and biodiversity. So bluntly, getting sugar out of a person's diet is one of the hardest but mm. most rewarding jobs to do. And particularly when somebody's right there, they've got that urge of hunger, which is a powerful drive. And you've got to say, well, what do you do now? And I've got to say one of the most practical things that was ever taught to me was by Dr. Bob Bust, and he said, get an apple and a handful of nuts. And you eat them, so you get the, the proteiny, dry heaviness, if you like, from the nuts. And then you get the light juiciness from the, from the apple. And the two combine really, really well. Mm. But then go for a walk. Yeah. And it, it, that can sometimes overcome that driver of hunger. It does. It does. I mean, I, I'm living proof of this. Digby takes me for long walks. He takes me at walks at difficult times. And A, it keeps me away from the table that I would otherwise be nibbling at. So getting out has a value just not being in the presence of the things that you can grab hold of and munch on. And the idea of getting something where there is fiber and where there is complex carbohydrates and where there is nutritional value is absolutely brilliant. Bob's always been good at that, the practical advice of do the bloody obvious. Don't do the really obscure stuff and don't go into high-dose probiotics or anything like that for something that can be fixed in simpler ways. I'm a big proponent of dogs and getting out and exercising because it changes your dietary needs. It changes the tendency to grab whatever's available and it expends energy and it has value in all those different ways. Plus, dogs share the microbes around family ah, members. yes. And so one person does it right. The other people tend to get the benefits of the same microbial diversity. This is another podcast, Mark. Um, Mark. Yes, it is. I, uh, I am 
I, I think dog-driven medicine <laughs> or cat-driven medicine. I'm, I know cats don't well, change that biodiversity. Cats, you get the toxoplasmosis. Yeah, I'm that, not sure about that I know, one. <laughs> I know. I, I can make an argument against them. But there's something about having friends and people to touch. There's yep. this idea of touch and involvement and care for another living being. And I still, to this day, watch Digby go out. He will toss down meat with straight down. When we go out, he nibbles on grass, and it was five or ten minutes frustratingly watch him just chew and chew and chew the grass. I'd regarded dogs as carnivores, but boy, when they get into eating possum poo and grass and they re-inoculate themselves, they're brilliant. They, they know something that we have forgotten. And I think that we need to re-nurture mothers to know something that mothers have almost forgotten, that people regard medicine as you know, a magical entity which makes everybody feel better. And medicine had a war on the very thing that made their babies better, which was microbes. Mm. That war has to come to an end. We need to stop the cesareans. We need to promote the breastfeeding. And we need to make sure that mums, at the very point that their health is critical, in those last three months of pregnancy, that they're doing the right job for their babies and making sure their internal environment is as good as their external environment. Dr. Mark Donahoe, I love the way that we've gone from antibiotics and the misuse of them to naughty bits in the microbiome to pet walking yes. <laughs> and back to the micro, maternal <laughs> microbiome. It's an art. It's not, <laughs> it's not studied, I've got to tell you. But it just, it really illustrates the complexity and just what a subject the microbiome is. Isn't it brilliant that life keeps bringing back mysteries? You think you've got it all solved. Medicine says, oh, okay, we know how all this works. And then something changes to rediscover what was there a hundred years ago in our known history, to rediscover it and say, oh, do you know what? All of that stuff that we said was BS, not. And in fact, there's a multi-billion dollar campaign in medicine to turn it into the new medicine. I find it exciting, but I still think the basics are there for us to be able to teach our patients and getting that right makes for a healthy generation. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. 